Part 4, Chapter 3 of The Gambler by Catherine Cecil Thurston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part 4, Chapter 3 It was in the middle of February that Clodagh arrived in Paris on her journey home, and it was the end of April before that ardently planned return to England at last took place. On a fresh, showery April afternoon, when all London looked renewed and beautified by soft air and fitful, brilliant sunshine, she alighted from the train at Charing Cross. Her arrival in the lofty, unfamiliar station was very different from her arrival at the bustling, exciting Parisian terminus two months earlier. Then she had descended from her train with the rapidity of one who sees in the least promising object the hope, if not the certainty, of interest. Now, she left her carriage with a quiet indifference to outward circumstance that acquaintance with society teaches. Unconsciously, she learned to move as the women of the world move, the women who know themselves possessed of a certain value, and are faintly flattered, faintly amused, perhaps faintly wearied by the knowledge. As she walked down the platform, a momentary glimmering of disappointment crossed her face, and she turned to Simonetta, who had come hurrying towards her. "'I thought Lady Frances would have met us,' she said. "'But I suppose she is waiting at the flat.' "'And the Signora?' she hazarded. "'She is not tired?' Clodagh smiled a little absently. "'Oh, no, Simonetta, you must not trouble about me. "'I have come home, you know.' She gave a little laugh. "'But we must not delay,' she added. "'Have you the keys of all the boxes?' "'Yes, Signora.' "'Then you can see to the examining of the luggage. "'When it is done, this porter will put you into a cab.' "'I've given him the address.' "'Yes, Signora. "'Then I shall see you at the flat?' "'Yes, Signora.' Clodagh smiled again, and, turning away, wended her way through the crowd of passengers surrounded by eager relatives and friends. Reaching the courtyard of the station, she unostentatiously hailed a hansom, and, having given her new address to the cabman, took her seat. A moment later the cab swung out into London, became one with the concourse of traffic, that in the season seems to overflow the streets. For the instant, Clodagh felt herself merged in the teeming life which the open doors of the vehicle permitted to approach so nearly. For the instant, she stifled the sense of isolation that had been slowly gathering force, and, leaning forward in her seat, fixed her attention upon the passing scene. Across Trafalgar Square, up Waterloo Place, and into the traffic of Piccadilly, she was borne with exhilarating speed, the cabman avoiding with extreme dexterity the throng of carriages, motor-cars and omnibuses that seemed momentarily to increase. To Clodagh, sitting rigidly attentive, the scene appeared like an impressive pageant, a pageant of magnificent wealth and abundant prosperity, a splendid, characteristic picture, in which the budding English trees, the imposing English clubs, the gorgeous English equipage and the beautiful English women made up the background and the central figures. It was the great procession of a life she had seen only in imagination, and as her curious eyes drank in its details, she found herself almost mechanically repeating in her mind the formula to which for the past two years she had clung with passionate persistence. I will live, I will enjoy. For the two months this had been her philosophy. Unconsciously it had been her philosophy since the night in Paris, when in one hour her castle of imagination had fallen about her feet, and she stood, as it were, houseless. In that brief space of time she realised that she had been inhabiting a fool's paradise. A fool's paradise! 
the name had seemed curiously apt, and through the long dark hours of that hateful night her cheeks had burned as she recalled how she had peopled her enchanted realm, while all the time its unconscious creator had forgotten its creation, or remembered it only as one self-righteous act among many. Lady Frances Hope was right. Deerhurst had been right. Barnard had been right. Ideals were a mistake. Things made to be shattered, as hopes were made to be broken. To live, to live fully, heedlessly, extravagantly, was the only wisdom. Gore had spoken truly. She had been a fool. She had been wrong in supposing that she had a debt to work off. On the contrary, life was her debtor. It was she who had a score against life. In this fever of mind she had written the letters that sent Nance on her interrupted journey to America, cancelled her invitation to her aunt and cousin to stay with her in England, and set her own feet on the road to the south. And in the weeks that followed, the same fever had burned in her blood. During the preparations for the Riviera, and during the journey to Nice, she had been possessed by a frenzy of energy. She had craved for incessant action and excitement with a pertinacity that had seemed insatiable and in the crowded casino at Monte Carlo, she had at last attained her object. She had at last succeeded in losing herself. There, day after day, night after night, she had sat in the stifling, scented atmosphere, listening to the incessant, significant click of gold and silver, watching the artificial light glare down upon the hideously artificial faces pressed in densely packed circles round the long green tables. The place had fascinated her with its outward immobility, its hidden sea of greedy passion. It was, she had firstly told herself, life. After six weeks, Lady Frances Hope had announced her intention of returning to London, but Clodagh had implored her to postpone her departure for another week, and when she had laughingly declared the delay impossible, had announced her own determination to remain on alone, a determination which no argument of her companions had been powerful enough to alter. And now, after nearly eight weeks spent between Monte Carlo and Nice, she was returning to take up her residence in a London flat, chosen for her by Lady Frances. Her brain felt feverishly active, as the cab, having skirted the park railings from High Park Corner to Knightsbridge, turned into the square courtyard belonging to the large, quiet building where she was to find her home. Descending quickly, she entered the big doorway and glanced curiously at her new surroundings. The vestibule was imposing, but a little lonely, and although the hall-porter came almost immediately to her assistance and listened attentively to the information that she was the new tenant of the second-floor flat and that her maid and her luggage were following in another cab, his impersonal air daunted her. She was annoyed, and almost frightened, by the sudden poignant desire that assailed her to see even one familiar face. However, she listened in her own turn to the polite assurance that all was in readiness for her arrival, and in due course she passed sedately to the lift and was borne upwards. As she stepped out upon the richly carpeted passage that led to her own door, she looked round in the half-formed expectation that Lady Frances Hope might be waiting for her outside the rooms. But almost at once she dismissed the idea. English people were not demonstrative. She would find Lady Frances awaiting her beside a cosy tea-table, or a bright fire. With a haste of anticipation, she crossed the corridor and pressed the electric bell. There was a slight delay before the summons was answered. Then the door was opened by a well-dressed, unemotional-looking maid. 
Clodagh stepped forward. "'I am Mrs. Milbank, your mistress,' she said quickly. The woman looked at her without curiosity. "'Will you kindly walk in, madam?' she said. "'I hope you will find everything in order.' A chill, a chill that painfully suggested homesickness, fell upon Clodagh, but she thrust it resentfully aside and entered the pretty panelled hall of the flat. "'Where is Lady Frances Hope?' she asked, pausing just inside the threshold. The maid came forward respectfully, but without enthusiasm. "'Her lady has not been here to-day, madam. Can I attend to you, madam, until your maid arrives?' Clodagh stood very still. She was conscious of a horrible, inordinate disappointment, but aware that the servant's eyes were still upon her, she rallied her self-control. "'Thanks,' she said. "'I shan't want anything but a cup of tea. "'Bring me some tea to my own room. "'Did Lady Frances Hope leave no message?' "'No message, madam.' The maid hesitated for an instant longer, then, feeling herself dismissed, moved noiselessly away to the servants' quarters. Left alone, Clodagh stood irresolute. This was her home. Her eyes wandered round the hall, from the walls of which the pictures of the former tenant looked down as though they criticised the intruder. This was her homecoming, a homecoming devoid of one friendly hand, one welcoming word. Unable to quell the passion of loneliness that swelled within her, she turned blindly and opened the door that stood nearest to her. It was the dining-room that she had chanced upon, a charming white-panelled room furnished with Sheraton furniture. But in her present mood its graceful severity failed to please her. To her lonely gaze it had an uninhabited look. It seemed almost to resemble a very perfect room upon the stage. Drawing back hastily, she closed the door, and moving down the hall, entered another room. This proved to be her own bedroom, a bright, high-ceilinged apartment, decorated and furnished in old French fashion, and possessing two large windows looking upon Hyde Park. But here again she was confronted by the sensation of unfamiliarity. And as she paused just inside the door, looking from the long windows to the stately bed, she was suddenly and completely dominated by her feelings. In a tempestuous wave of emotion, her hunger for happiness rose menacingly, while the tide of her philosophy suddenly ebbed. In that moment, as she stood alone in the wide room, she swayed between trust in her own heart and faith in the world's healing power. Then, as so frequently happens, the world snatched the laurels before they had been held out. With the same unmoved demeanour, the maid who had admitted her appeared at the door. "'If you please, madam, the housemaid tells me that her ladyship did send a note for you this morning. You'll find it on the dressing-table.' At the woman's words, Clodagh started, and her whole face coloured and changed. Hurrying across the room, she saw the letter, picked it up, and tore it open. "'Dearest Clodagh,' she read, "'I must seem a perfect beast, but my old Aunt Deborah, with whom I can't afford to quarrel, has announced her stupid intention of spending a day in town, and of course it must be this day of all days. Do be a darling, and show you forgive me by coming round to dine at eight-thirty. Lord Deerhurst returned yesterday from the famous two-months rescue, looking younger than ever.' He and Val will be here tonight. Bridge after dinner. Don't fail to come. Yours, F.H. As Clodagh read the last line of the letter, she lifted her head and turned with a quick gesture to the maid who was waiting by the door. 
"'I want a fire lighted here, and my tea brought to me immediately it is ready,' she cried in a changed voice, "'and send my maid in directly she arrives. I am dining out.' Without waiting for a reply, she crossed the room and paused beside one of the windows, looking down upon the park. Her spirits had risen, her excitement had been rekindled. She had been saved from the companionship she had learned to dread. Companionship with herself. End of Part 4 Chapter 3